the air and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again. I'm Jason Drury, welcoming you to another of the continuing series of film, TV and video game composer interviews on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Vivek Badala is a two-time Emmy award-winning composer for his music in the Cartoon Network series The Tom and Jerry Show. His most recent project is a thought-provoking PBS documentary series, Asian Americans, which casts a new lens on United States history and the ongoing role that Asian Americans have played. Each of the five episodes contain wall-to-wall music, and Vivek created different themes which evolve alongside the storytelling throughout the series. Asian Americans premiered on PBS on May 11th, 2020. the score, he intentionally threaded recurring themes into the story to help the audience connect the dots and see the parallels between these oppressive situations that Asian Americans had endured throughout history in the US. One of the themes Vivek created is called Resigned Acceptance, which he explains is the decision of the oppressed to not rebel, but to unite and better their own situation as best as possible. Overall, the composer set out to create a cohesive sound to represent the commonality amongst the oppressed, who ultimately overcame their injustices and triumphed. The score is stylishly diverse, featuring jarring percussion, brooding electronica, 19th century European orchestral music, modern rock and bebop. May 2020, for the Cinematic Sound Radio Network, I talked to Vivek Mandela via Skype at his recording studio in Los Angeles. During the interview, we talked extensively on how he scored the documentary series Asian Americans, his work on the Tom and Jerry show, and how he became a film and TV music composer. Also, during the show, we will feature music by Vivek Mandela, including from the documentary series Asian Americans, a score he crafted to tell a story of his culturally oppressed group throughout American history. Vivek Medalla, tell us about the series Asian Americans. Yeah, so the Asian Americans is an epic five-hour documentary series, or maybe you can call it a mini-series. Now, these are PBS hours, so a PBS hour is like 55 minutes. And it chronicles two and a half centuries of immigration and diaspora issues related to uh, Asian Americans. Um, it's from the point of view of the people. I mean, it's kind of an immersive experience. The series itself is, I think, pretty kind of joyful. When you think about the histories of, of immigrant populations, not just Asian Americans, but all the, the various people who've immigrated to the U.S., some of those histories, a lot of them can be pretty dark. And there's a long history in the U.S. of of exclusion and oppression. You know, and again, that's not exclusive to the Asian American experience by any means. But the series is, I think, quite 
encouraging and joyful. I think that was the intention of the filmmakers. What attracted you to the project? Well, I, I, you know, I'm interested in the subject and the topics that the series captures. You know, I'm interested in them sort of in general. I have a strong interest in social justice and other kinds of you know, public policy and history and so on. I've worked with, prior to the series, I had actually worked with one of the directors on a, a two or three films and like her work a lot. And so when she first approached me, my answer almost reflexively was going to be yes, regardless of what the series was about. And so, yeah, so it was a combination of the fact that Grace Lee, who's one of the three directors, she directs episodes two and four, she was integrally involved, is what originally attracted me to the project. And then the more I learned about it, the more I was interested in in the subject. How did you go about schooling the series? Well, um, whenever I start a project, it usually starts the same. The first thing I do is I have a panic attack. I have a lot of self-doubt, and I'm like, what am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. Why am I doing this? How did I get myself into this? That's always like stage one of any project for me. And once I get past that, then I can actually do the work. But it's almost like it's a stage I have to go through and process, regardless of what the, what the project was. So sticking with the pattern, that's what I did with the Asian Americans. I first uh, kind of had a, a freak out about what am I going to do? How, how am I going to pull this off? And then I started talking to the filmmakers about the stories that were going to be told in the series and how they're going to be told, what role music could play. One of the things about documentaries specifically and documentaries that are about important subjects, at least for me, I, I feel a, a, maybe a special responsibility to be very sensitive to the material and very precisely calibrate what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I think with documentaries in particular, modern audiences tend to be very sensitive to feeling manipulated by music. And that's the last thing you want in a documentary like this. You want the material to sort of speak for itself and to draw the audience in. So that's one of the things that one of the approaches that I initially started thinking about with any doc, but with this one in particular, and and had a lot of conversations with the filmmakers, the, with the showrunner and, and with the, the various directors of the, of the different episodes. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to do was really calibrate precisely how much I wanted to foreshadow things. There are a lot of recurring themes in the show, and I, I have kind of I don't want to call them necessarily light motifs, but there are musical ideas that are that accompany those historical ideas. And in some cases, they affect them. In some cases, they reflect the ideas. And so really sculpting the music to fit exactly what we want to be saying and what we don't necessarily want to say at any given moment. I feel like music can be effective in maybe posing or maybe half-posing questions that the audience can answer themselves. In other words, you can I think you can sort of plant seeds musically that invite the audience to connect dots themselves without necessarily hitting them over the head with, with things. Now, having said that, there were many opportunities that I took advantage of throughout the series to actually make very bold musical statements and actually have the music function in a, in a very direct way. So it's a pretty varied score. It's pretty much wall-to-wall. There's about four and a half hours of music altogether across the five episodes. And it's a very diversive score. Lots of various styles, including percussion, big band, there's rock, there's electronic, lots of different musical styles. Now, there's one theme which you describe as resigned acceptance. Can you tell us all about that, please? 
Oh, the resigned acceptance. Yeah. So there's a theme that I discussed quite a bit with Leo Chang, who is the director of episodes one and three. It's one of the recurring themes in the series. And it's a phrase that he came up with, resigned acceptance. And I, it sort of resonated with me. The idea was you have, say, a situation of social injustice where, okay, let's, let's take an actual case in episode one, which is the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was a law that was passed in the 1880s that forbade people of Chinese descent from entering the country, and in many cases for those who were already here from becoming citizens. And if you weren't a citizen, there, there were all kinds of restrictions. You couldn't buy land or couldn't own land. So in that situation, what does one do? You can work to organize and try to overturn those systems of injustice, which is a lot of work and with a very uncertain outcome. Or you can navigate through that system as it is and try to better your own situation or that of yourself and your family. There are some characters, or actually real people who existed in the 19th century and early 20th century, profiled in, in the series, who sort of choose the latter. On one hand, we can judge them for that. On the other hand, we can also empathize with the situation. I think we can do both. And that's what resigned acceptance that the concept is, well, all right, it's too big of a lift to actually try to change the system of injustice. So let me see what I can do to better my own situation with, within that system. And the reason this can be a dicey proposition is because in the process, often you find that you throw other people under the bus. And, you know, so it's sort of like if um, in one situation, there was a South Asian man from North India who wanted to become a citizen and wanted to own land, but he couldn't because of the laws on the books. So rather than trying to change the laws, he actually tried to make a court case that he was white. Uh, in other words, in effect, in an effort to most efficiently better his own situation, he did something that further cements into place the system of injustice. He wasn't challenging that the racial injustice was in fact injustice, but rather that he was trying to better his own situation within that social hierarchy. And again, you can't really necessarily blame him because you're in this kind of, this really oppressive situation, but at the same time, it was a kind of a disreputable thing to do. So this was another example of resigned acceptance. So this was kind of a, a theme that you see throughout the, at least episode one, and it comes in in subsequent episodes. And so the question was, what do we do musically? And so I kind of came up with this theme that is a little unsettling, and it feels there's a dissonance with both a raised fifth and a lowered fifth. So you've got a perfect fifth interval, and then you've got these half-step dissonances, and it it's a kind of cyclical musical passage. It kind of goes between usually two different instruments. In most cases, it's a, a woodwind and a plucked instrument or a woodwind and piano. So I might have bass clarinet or oboe alternating with harp or piano. It's this kind of push-pull of this quote-unquote resigned acceptance idea. And that's a, a theme that's kind of threaded throughout the series. And, and especially you'll, you'll hear it in episode one. And again, the idea was to sort of plant the seed when that idea first comes up in episode one, and then you hear recurrences of it whenever we're bringing it back. And again, the idea is to sort of gently suggest to the audience that there's a connection here without really explicitly telling them. Now, of course, music is intrinsically suggestive. <laughs> so, and this is all kind of normal film scoring stuff, I think. Thank you. 
That was the Q's Angel Island and Brother vs. Brother from the original score to the documentary series Asian Americans, composed by my guest today, Vivek Madala. Now Vivek, where was the score recorded and how many musicians were involved in performing the score? Yeah, so um, I have here at my studio a, well, let me let me put it this way. Um, I, I have a background in electroacoustics and in physics and engineering. And I spent about three and a half years building a studio. It's basically where I work and where I spend about 16 to 20 hours a day. And so I kind of have my own sort of mini scoring stage where I can do a lot here, actually. I record a lot of chamber size sections here. I, you know, I have a, a drum room and a piano room. I've got a live room for sort of chamber size groups, say 12 to 14 players at a time, depending on the configuration. So I do a lot of double string quartet, triple string quartet, woodwind quintet type stuff here. I recorded the entire thing here in my studio in West LA. And in terms of instrumental configuration, so everything that I play myself, I'm primarily a drummer, just a drums, piano, guitars, bass. I just did live here myself. And then strings, woodwinds, and brass. And the configurations, it depended really on the cue and what was needed dramatically. So mostly it's chamber size groups. The typical strings would have been five, four, three, three. Five first violins, four second violins, three violas, three cellos. No double bass for the mostly string quartet stuff with a five, four, three, three configuration. There are a few cues that were larger, as many as 18 strings. Woodwinds were typically soloists. And then there are some where I'm doing a sort of traditional big bands. I, I think I used four trumpets, four bones, meaning three tenor trombones, one bass trombone, five saxes. So that would be two altos, two tenors, one barry sax. But I have to tell you, one of the things that I've discovered over the last maybe two, three years is that there's a particular brass sound that I'm, I've been kind of drawn to. I used it more on this score than I had in the past, and that is a a kind of more of a Tower of Power sort of brass section. Tower of Power was, uh, was and I guess still is, kind of a funk group from, I guess, up in the Bay Area, East Bay, Oakland, Berkeley, I think. There was a kind of grittiness to the brass sound that I really like, as opposed to like the Earth, Wind & Fire kind of super slick L.A. sound, which, which is more sort of super tight trumpet tr- trombone type sound. The Tower of Power sound to me is more... Um, reedy. Uh, so I, you know, I did a lot of the brass sections that you, a lot of the, especially the sort of archival stuff during, like, say, the 1960s, 1970s, a lot of that period stuff that I did. It was maybe one trumpet, one tenor trombone, and three saxes um, with a lot of barry sax. I just love that, like, throaty, growly sound. 
And there's something really tactile about it. Also, on a practical level, I found that it very often would sit better with dialogue. The episodes are kind of wall-to-wall music, so you have to kind of figure out how to say things musically without getting in the way of the dialogue and supporting it. And somehow I found that, like, three saxes would sit well with the dialogue more easily than non-reed brass instruments. There's more saxophone in this score than I've used in other dramatic scores, but I think it doesn't call attention to itself. And a lot of people, I think, sort of culturally have an aversion to saxophone, which is, I think, probably if you grew up in the 80s, like me, and you think of saxophone, you think of, like, George Michael, Careless Whisperer. There are all these, like, bad bad saxophone cliches. Yeah, I, I, I feel like in this particular score, the saxes really connect with the story in a way that feels organic. So utilizing the saxophone the way you did worked well with the visuals on screen. I think so, especially um, a lot of the stuff that was happening from like the 1930s and 40s big band stuff that I did through the 1960s and early 1970s, um, where I used more of an R&B kind of sound. Yeah, I I, I think so. Um, Now, there are a lot of places where I used a lot of bass clarinet also. There are ways in which bass clarinet and and tenor sax in in my mind there's there can be some amount of you know in the Venn diagram of expression there's a lot of overlap in those two circles
That was Parade Sighting and Joseph tape from the original score to the documentary series Asian Americans, composed by my guest today, Vivek Medalla. Now, Vivek, how long did it take you to score Asian Americans? Yeah, um, you know, I think I started working on the score in earnest probably either October or November. It's it's kind of hard to say because I was finishing up a season of a TV show that I was scoring, and I want to say that I didn't really start working on the Asian Americans until that was done. So that was probably end of October, early November. And then I turned in music for the final episode, I think it was middle of March. In fact, the last two or three recording sessions were after the pandemic quarantine sort of you know social distancing had started so i ended up having to do remote <laughs> remote sessions oh you know what it was actually i turned in the score so the entire score I, I recorded here it was the main title strings i think i ended up having to do remotely and that was a bit of a logistical exercise there but <laughs> so you had to do the strings for the main title remotely? Yeah, yeah. So the main title string sound is going to be a little different than than for the score because the string players all have, you know, they have different mics and different rooms and so on in their in their houses where they were recording. It was a little bit of a technical exercise to try to get everything to sound cohesive. A lot of use of my Pultec EQs and convolution reverbs to get that unified sound. What's interesting is I had done a main title here and some of the executive producers, there was some there there was a misunderstanding or miscommunication about what the intention was and there was some disagreement among the executive producers and so I ended up starting over. And right when I needed to record strings and strings and brass, the social distancing started. So yeah, so that was remote. But it was fun. And it was actually a good test because we I guess we don't really know how long this is going to go on. And I've had to do some on some other projects. I've had to do some remote recording sessions. And so it's it was nice to kind of break the ice on the main title. Yeah. Did the producers have any influence on how you scored the series? Um, it was kind of both. Uh, the filmmakers were actually quite involved. The way I like to work is I like to have the filmmakers come to my studio and sit in the room with me and review cues when they have notes or when they have suggestions or there are things that they don't like. I like to actually take it apart in the room with them in real time and sometimes pick up an instrument and audition ideas in real time. Like I might pick up a guitar and actually play in real time with the picture and go over ideas in the room with them. In this case, interestingly, one of the first things they asked me to do was to send over a library of my music for them to sort of check out and kind of marinate in. I sent over a huge amount of you know excerpts from different scores and in some cases some dance pieces that I'd written and other things, mostly orchestral music, but other things as well. And they ended up actually temping the entire series series with mostly music that I'd written for other films. So when it came time for me to write the score, in some cases I was having to deal with the temp that came from me, which is a kind of an interesting set of handcuffs because as a composer, you don't want to do some things you've done before, although there's some, there might be something comforting in knowing that okay, yeah, I've done this before, so I know how to execute this idea. Or these, I can do these musical gestures in a way that feel comfortable. It's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, so yeah, the a lot of their ideas were based on stuff I'd already sent them. But I also had a lot of ideas for other things, and we, we talked about them quite a bit, you know, send over mock-ups of things. And I think my process is a little unusual 
to the extent that while I do use virtual instruments quite a bit, I use a lot of live instruments as well. And my quote unquote mock-ups or demos generally are not that different than the final product. Because I have the ability to record small ensembles here at my studio, I regularly, rather than mocking things up with virtual instruments, well, I'll do that as well, but then I'll bring in live players. And I, you know, I found that a lot of times filmmakers, when they hear music to their picture, they're reacting viscerally in the moment to what they're hearing. So if I say, okay, here's a mock-up, but just imagine that the strings and the woodwinds are going to be live, and what you're hearing is virtual instruments now, even though they may know that intellectually, their their reaction to the music, just again, reacting viscerally in the moment, might be different than if they were hearing the final product. So as much as possible, I try to give them what the final product is going to be, or at least what I imagine it'll be. So, so yeah, mostly they were hearing something very close to the, if not the final product.
and another suite featuring the varied styles of music that appears in the score to the documentary series Asian Americans, composed by my guest today, Vivek Medella. Those were the cues, Bay Area, Defining Citizenship, TOS, and 1968. Now, Vivek, how did you get into film and TV music? Well, I actually had a, quite a circuitous route. I um, started writing music when I was around seven, but the idea of being a musician or a composer was never really, it wasn't, I don't want to say that my parents specifically discouraged me, but there was not an environment of encouragement around it because culturally, I think the environment that I was in, you know, I guess music was not considered a, a serious pursuit or something that a serious person would go into. You know, I had a pretty good background in math and physics. And when I was 15, I went to the Berklee College of Music in Boston to be a jazz drummer. I was, you know, I was a pretty serious drummer back then and thought that that's what I wanted to do. And then came to realize that my main strengths were really in writing and producing. And I, as I mentioned, I had a good background in math and physics. I ended up when I was 16, I went to engineering school and I studied uh, electrical engineering and and economics uh, undergrad. And then later uh, ended up you know, I went to graduate school in engineering and applied physics. And I worked as an engineer and, and scientist at Tektronix and Dolby Laboratories and later Avid, uh, DigiDesign and Audio. What I really wanted to do, though, was write music. So it's sort of like I was designing and building the paintbrushes, but I wanted to do the painting. And so in 2000, so uh, 20 years ago, there was a national competition for film scoring that was co-sponsored by like Guitar Center and Film Music Magazine and Turner Classic Movies. And the grand prize, if you enter and you win the grand prize, that you basically get an opportunity to score a silent film restoration for Turner Classic Movies. So I entered the competition and I won the grand prize. And that was my first film score. It was called The Ace of Hearts in late 2000, so almost 20 years ago. And the thing is, this is really what I had been wanting to do for a number of years. I think I was eight years old when I saw my first Hitchcock film. It was on television. It was North by Northwest, Bernard Herrmann. And I think my father actually had, had seen in the TV Guide that it was going to be on. And he, he said, hey, you, sh- you should watch this. I think you'd really dig it. And, of course, after I saw that, I, I had to watch all the Hitchcock films, at least, and, and specifically the ones that Bernard Herrmann scored. That's when I realized this is what I want to do. And so, yeah, when I was 26, I scored this uh film for Turner Classic Movies, and they were quite pleased with what I did. And I ended up scoring, I guess, five more films for them. And then in 2008, I got the um, Sundance Film Composing Fellowship to go to the Sundance Film Scoring Lab. And that really kind of drew me more into independent films and documentaries. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of what brought me to where I am now. In fact, um, Grace Lee, who was one of the directors on The Asian Americans, I met her through a mutual colleague of ours who I knew through Sundance. Um, so that's that's kind of how I got eventually, that's how I got to where I am right now. With with the silent films, the the music is really telling the story. It's, it's really um, doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And it actually, doing the silent films really, I think, gave me a good foundational basis for doing like animation scoring, which is what I've one of the things I've been doing for the last few years. And talking of animation, how did it get involved with the Tom and Jerry show? Yeah, um, so my understanding is that around 2014, Warner Brothers decided to reboot the old classic Tom and Jerry show 
with all new stories and animation. So they did a season of Tom and Jerry, and I, my understanding is that it was kind of a train wreck. It didn't go well. So they then retooled around 2016, and that's when I got involved. They they hired me. Actually, what, the way I got the gig was my colleague, Dan Blessinger, who's a fantastic recording and mix engineer and also songwriter, who I met actually on my very first film score. He was the recording and mix engineer uh, for the first thing I did for Turn to Classic Movies. And then I subsequently hired him for other projects. I think he had signed on to be the one of the sound designers for the show and they were looking for new composers and so he recommended me so I basically just did an audition which was to score a like a 30 second Tom and Jerry clip which I did just using virtual instruments and I guess they liked it enough that they they called me back and I scored one episode and that went well and and then 124 episodes later here I am yeah, so in October, end of October, I think I turned in my my 124th episode. Did you go back to the old Scott Bradley scores to influence your music? Yeah, so one of the earliest pieces of direction that I got from the director was really to to go back and and study the classic Scott Bradley scores, which are brilliant. His orchestration was brilliant. Uh, you know, his use of 12-tone serialism was really inventive. And so I spent some time kind of immersing myself in some of those classic episodes. You know, the, the Tom and Jerry show, I guess the very first... Well, you know, it wasn't the Tom and Jerry show. It was... It predated television. So the, the very first Tom and Jerry short film came out, I think, in December of 1940. And if you've never seen those early Tom and Jerry shows, I recommend you try to go back and find them because they're really beautifully drawn. The stories are really sweet and the, the music is is brilliant. So a lot of what I'm doing is sort of drawn from those early shorts. He was, a, I think, a really good storyteller through music. For example, you can listen to the scores from these early Tom and Jerry shorts and get a sense of what's happening on screen. Uh, it's not just because the music was very precisely sculpted to the dramatic action, but because there was story in it. It was all melody and all counterpoint all the time, and that's something that I've brought into the scores that I've done as well. The Scott Bradley stuff was, you know, again, 1940s, 1950s, and a lot has happened musically and culturally since then. So I, on one hand, I'm drawing from the same kind of musical sources I think that he was drawing from, you know, a lot of late 19th century romanticism and early 20th century jazz and, and big band. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happened in the intervening years musically. And so I, I actually have a, a much broader palette of musical colors and a sort of a, a larger base of inspiration from which to draw. So, you know, every now and then you might hear some um, late 50s, early 60s modal jazz kind of threaded into the Tom and Jerry scores that I'm doing. Every now and then there'll be a, a Jimi Hendrix reference with the, you know, the dominant seven, I guess the dominant 13 sharp nine chord that I'll use, but not with guitars, but maybe maybe with brass instruments or something. Every now and then I can even go outside of the orchestral and big band palette. And, you know, there's one episode where I was drawing from a lot of 90s rock Influences, So, you know, I had a whole Soundgarden thing in one episode and one episode where I was able to go a little Nine Inch Nails and had, I've had hip hop in some episodes. So, you know, while fundamentally there's a lot in common with the classic Scott Bradley scores, I do actually have the ability to go outside of that. You know, Warner's has been pretty hands off with the music and 
pretty much kind of get to do whatever I want. Thank you.
That was the score to the episode Puppy Guard from the latest Tom and Jerry show with music composed by my guest today, Vivek Medella. And Vivek, you've also, in terms of animation, been involved with the new Scooby-Doo show, Scooby-Doo and Guess Who? Um, so I did the new theme song for the, the new Scooby-Doo series, which was a lot of fun. I mean, it's a, it's a super fun show. My, I brought in my, my friend and colleague David Poe to sing the lead vocal on the new theme song recording. What's inter- what's what's kind of a little a little piece of trivia. I I originally sang all the vocals on it just to get the producers to approve it before I brought in the actual the real singer David Poe. Once they approved it, then I brought him in and recorded his vocal. And hearing his vocal juxtaposed with my background vocals, my original intention was to have him record all the vocals. But then we were like, you know, that actually sounds pretty good. So we left my background vocals. So I'm actually singing on the new Scooby-Doo theme. (laughs) Now, do you get a choice of what projects you work on? You know, I guess one could say I choose the projects that I work on, but they also maybe choose me. Somehow the projects that I work on, I've been drawn to for you know various reasons i do score a lot of documentaries that are in some way in some way deal with things that are happening in the world today that i find important whether it's climate change or things having to do with social justice or or the institution of war so a lot of the films a lot of the documentaries in particular but a lot of the films more generally that i score are mainly due to or at least the 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 way i find them is because these are sort of the waters that i'm swimming in do you score documentaries in a different way to your dramatic projects yeah you know for me there's not really a big distinction there's a story that the filmmakers are telling and I'm part of that storytelling process. The music really exists to draw the audience into the story and into the situation that the characters are experiencing. So, um, yeah, there's not really a big difference for me. I think I would say maybe 10 years ago I might have had a different answer, but I'm finding that increasingly there's not really a big distinction for me between scripted narrative stories and those that are assembled from documentaries where they're really kind of put together in in the editing process. I've also noticed that you've done additional music on past projects. Yeah, so I haven't done additional music, quote-unquote, in a few years. It's something I was doing maybe 10 years ago. The thing about additional music is, you know, typically the way it works uh, is that there's a, a composer who might need some help because of compressed schedules and so on. And so the idea is that you're writing music based on their musical and dramatic vision. And so it kind of requires that you get inside the head of the composer who you're working for. I find that this can be really fun and it it can be a, a growing experience, at least for me, where, you know, I have certain ways that I hear things, certain ways that I like to voice chords and I have techniques that I've developed in terms of how to write contrapuntal lines and voice leading and things like that. And other people have different ways of doing things. And they might be using a different palette of colors than what I'm used to. And and so it's an opportunity to grow. Um, I haven't been doing it really for the last few years, but it's it's something that I, I think was a, a valuable thing for me to have done. Now, having said that, I do play on a lot of other composers' scores. There's composers who hire me to play drums, guitar, keys sometimes do string arrangements and so on and i think sometimes i get credited for additional music even 
if I'm playing something, I guess, you know, sometimes the line is really blurred where they might send over a chord chart or there might be a musical motif and I'm coming up with guitar parts. Is that writing? Is that additional music? Is that orchestration? I don't really know. And so it's possible I've been credited <laughs> for additional music for, you know, and what really what I did was play some guitar parts or record some drum tracks or something. I So I, I don't really know. <laughs> I see you did some additional music for one of my favorite past shows, Warehouse 13. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Ed Rogers was the, the composer for that. On the, the pilot and on the on the first season, he had me do quite a bit of stuff. So, yeah, and actually, this is a good example of what I was talking about earlier, where Ed has a certain way of hearing things and a certain style of writing and producing that at the time was actually quite different than what I was doing. And now I, probably a lot of his musical vocabulary has been absorbed into mine. So I probably do things that I learned maybe even unconsciously from what he was doing. I know that I recall the main the main kind of musical motif in that show was this sort of Dorian mode melody. I do find myself kind of gravitating towards that every now and then. Not that particular melody, but melodies based on the sort of Dorian modal structure.
and that was the teaser to documentary Aquaria and a lovely piece of music it was too composed by my guest today Vivek Madala. my name is Jason Drury now Vivek what particular genres do you enjoy working in yeah, you know, one of the nice things about film scoring is that it varies so much from project to project, from film to film, from series to series. The musical needs of the the film or the show are, are really determined by the aesthetics of the director and, you know, what their intentions are. And I like the fact that it varies so much. So I don't have a particular quote-unquote genre that I like to work in. I, I like the fact that I can move around quite a bit. One of my early mentors uh, was Elmer Bernstein, and he he once told me that he, um, throughout his career, he had been sort of pigeonholed at various points. In the 1950s, he was pigeonholed as one thing. In the 60s, he you know he was a Western guy, and then like in the 70s and 80s, he became screwball comedy guy, and so on. And when he was pigeonholed into those, when he was put into those boxes, it was very difficult for him to work outside of those boxes. And and so maybe I'm fortunate to the extent that I not been quote unquote successful enough to be pigeonholed. <laughs> like the people who are hiring me to, to score documentaries and, you know, serious films really probably don't know that I've done these cartoons and vice versa. I, not that I'm deliberately putting up a firewall or anything, but I, I do like being able to move around quite a bit. I like doing action films. I like doing serious dramas. Comedy is, is another area that I really, really enjoy, especially dark you know, dry comedies. Another way to think about your question is that I like doing whatever I'm not doing. <laughs> so, or I would, I should say I would like to be doing whatever I'm not doing. Do you remember the old group Steely Dan? It was Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. It was, it was basically, it was two guys and then a Rolodex of studio musicians. So Walter Becker was the, he actually died a couple of years ago. He was the guitar player and bass player, depending on the track. So, so sometimes sometimes he was playing bass, sometimes he was playing guitar. And in an interview with, I think it was Rolling Stone at one point, he, the interviewer asked him, do you consider yourself mainly a bass player or a guitar player? And he said that whenever he was playing bass, he felt like he was really a guitar player who just happened to be playing bass at the time. Like he, And whenever he was playing guitar, he felt like he was really a bass player who happened to, whenever he was doing one, he felt like he should have been doing the other. And I call that Walter Becker syndrome. And I, I think I have a pretty virulent case of Walter Becker syndrome. So whenever whenever I'm doing one thing, I feel like really I, <laughs> I would like to be doing something else, which I think is is probably healthy because it means that, you know, I'm not going to get complacent. I'm, I'm not sure. But, you know, when I'm doing animation, as much as, as fun as that is and as, as immersive as that experience is, I do really relish when I'm able to change gears and do something completely different. Um, likewise, when I was working on the Asian Americans, which is a very serious documentary series, which has a lot of light moments, those few cues where I was able to kind of go back into sort of animation mode were really fun. Whereas six months earlier, I would have, I not, would not have predicted that at all because uh, when you're neck deep in animation, it's, you want to do anything but that. Now, I would ask you now which favorite recording stage you're working in. But as you have built your own, I think I can guess what the answer is to that question. Is there any other scoring stage which you enjoy recording your music? I, I would, yeah, and I have. Um, I've done some recording at, well, what used to be the Newman scoring stage, which I'm not sure if, if it's even still around now with the 
corporate mergers. The Sony scoring stage is one of my favorites. There used to be a, a studio in town, Martin Sound, that I used to like quite a bit. So yeah, whenever I do anything that requires a larger orchestra, then I, I do go to a, a commercial recording facility. But because of the I'm mostly working in the independent film world, the budgets are typically and the and the and the dramatic needs of the films are typically not in my world have not been large orchestra. I would say like once every two years or or maybe even more have I gone to a, a commercial recording stage for a large recording session. Now, away from the film and TV world, is there any particular music that you enjoy listening to? I try to absorb as much as I can from whatever's going on right now. I do every so often find myself going back to things that I listened to in my childhood. So interesting, like the very first album I ever bought, I used to be embarrassed to say this, but I don't know that I should be. So when I was eight years old and was able to go to the record store and and choose whatever album I wanted to buy for my first album, I bought Def Leppard's Pyromania. <laughs> I got to tell you, it still, it still holds up. I just listened to it the other day after having not heard it in many, many years. And that classic Mutt Lang production, it, like, it still holds up and the writing is really good. It's an odd thing to say, but like... A couple weeks ago, I started listening to Def Leppard's Pyromania, and that's a great record. And it has absolutely nothing to do with most of what I'm doing right now. But there's something that was kind of nice to kind of go back to that and recalibrate. You know, every now and then I'll pull out like a, a classic, like a Marvin Gaye record or listen to some Charlie Parker or Art Tatum you know, something that I listened to maybe when I was a teenager, Bud Powell, a lot of the early bebop guys, or I might pull out some of the, the French Impressionists that I listened to when I was younger. And it helps me sort of, I don't know, I guess it like regrounds me or it helps me recalibrate. And I also really enjoy it. You know, sometimes I'll listen to things from around the world that I'm not familiar with, um, different kinds of tuning systems, different kinds of modality from other parts of the world. And I find that even if I don't understand all of what I'm listening to. There's something about it that if it's evocative, if it moves me in some way on an emotional level, I find that that it helps me grow as a person. And you know, ultimately, I have to like it. I have to. And so, you know, reflexively, I probably do gravitate more than I should to stuff that I grew up listening to. Um, and there's something, I guess, maybe comforting about it. I don't know. What interests do you have away from music? Um, yeah, quite a few. <laughs> you know, I mentioned earlier that I'm very interested in, in public policy and in social justice and in things that are happening in the world, whether it be the threat of nuclear war or the fact that the planet is literally melting. It's interesting we're, we're living in this, in this period of this, this pandemic, which is exposing a lot of the social injustice that has persisted for many, many years, if not decades, if not centuries. And we're in an unusual time where, where maybe people are paying attention to these things in ways that they hadn't in the, in the past. And this is maybe an opportunity for us to organize and try to create a better world. So that's kind of one of the main things that I'm thinking about right now. Now, is there anything you can tell us that you are working on in the future? Yeah. So there are a few things that I probably can't talk about because they're sort of in process. There are a couple of films that I was supposed to be scoring right now that have been put on hold. So that's not happening until this is all over, although kind of everything's sort of in jeopardy now. Um, there are two ballets that I'm working on. Uh, well, one of them is a is, I guess you could call it more of a traditional ballet. Another one is sort of modern dance. So there are these two projects that were we were looking at a 2021 
premiere. I don't know if we're still looking at that. It could be that things are pushed out more. But I'm also, you know, I also, I produce records for other artists. And so I've been working with a couple of other artists on two different releases. Yeah, mostly working on projects that have been sort of ongoing. Um, And there's a another season of a TV show that I've been scoring that we're in talks about continuing. Can you tell us which one? The the Tom and Jerry show. It's it's actually they're they're launching a a, a new one. Um, it's a whole new whole new uh, kind of Tom and Jerry show. So yeah. <laughs> so as we know, we can see the Asian Americans on the PBS America channel on May the eleventh. Would you know that uh, UK listeners will be able to see the show on the PBS America channel, which we have in the UK? I think so. And I think you can probably also stream it off of, I think Amazon will be streaming it. So assuming you have access to that, um, you should be able to see it. Yeah. Vivek Madela, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's been great speaking with you. I do hope you enjoyed my interview with composer Vivek Madela. I leave you with his closing credits piece from the documentary series Asian Americans, the soundtrack album of which should be available soon on Lakeshore Records. My thanks again to Vivek Medella for joining us today, and the two we meet again, for me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening. Thank you for listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I would like to thank Tim Burden for providing the bumpers and things you heard in today's show, and David Cosina for writing Cinematic Sound Radio Network's intro music. If you have any comments, questions, and concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Cin Sound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. It really does help get the show noticed and helps potential new listeners find the show. 
And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.